Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to Government vs. the Robots, the fortnightly podcast that takes a look at how technology will affect politics in the future. My guest this week is Clive Thompson. Clive is a journalist writing for Wired, the New York Times magazine, and most recently he's the author of the book Coders, who they are, what they think, and how they are changing our world. We sat down for a conversation about whether coders are the most powerful people on the planet, what their personalities can tell us about the culture in companies like Twitter, and whether we're heading for a battle between the ultimately rational world of algorithms and the uniquely emotional world of humans. Clive, thanks very much for joining me today. Good to be here. It's a bright sunny day outside in uh, London, so I'm glad you're seeing the city at its best. Absolutely. Uh, I've just spent a couple of minutes listening to a remade version of Whitney Houston's I Want to Dance with Somebody. (laughs) Yes, I'm familiar with that one. I'm familiar with that one, having performed it. I, uh, and I should explain for listeners that, uh, Clive, you, also, you as well as being a successful writer and journalist, you're also in a band, right? That's right, uh, the DeLorean Sisters. Uh, it is a country bluegrass band, and we're perhaps best known for taking 1980s synth-pop hits uh, and refashioning them as old-school, sort of Dust Bowl Americana country bluegrass. Well, I know you weren't expecting to come on this show to plug your band, but uh, I'm always I'm always <laughs> thrilled to plug the band. And what Absolutely. is your? I'm on. I may share mine. I may not. But what is your kind of guiltiest pleasure when it comes to? If you ever stick the headphones on loud and you're at home on your own? Oh boy, uh, it's probably. I mean, I don't know if you'd call it guilty because I think I'm kind of proud of it. But like you know, like uh, you know those huge '80s anthemic uh, late '70s songs like from Journey. I love that stuff. Oh my god, I could listen to that all day long. If I'm ever in a terrible mood or just have no energy like i'll just blast some journey for like half an hour and straight up i'm ready to take on the world don't stop believing is often heard absolutely at football stadiums in the yeah. uk <laughs> i know exactly it's the cheesiest but it, it just puts me in a good mood it every does time do the so job. Yeah, yeah it definitely does the job mine yeah i'm a big fan of uh of swedish pop songstress robin but anyway we really are oh my god absolutely okay now okay we're drifting we're we drifting. really are yeah. drifting from the matter <laughs> at hand um i was taking a quick look at some of your older articles while we were getting ready for this interview and mm-hmm. i clocked one from 2002 Gotcha. Yeah, uh, sure. probably the first one that appears on the Wired website, and you had written a piece about essentially saying 
we're entering a different era in the relationship between machines and people. That's right. And we could well find that machines are doing a bit more than uh, a bit more for us than they are at the moment. Right. That's like more than 15 years ago now. <laughs> I'm still seeing the same article yeah. getting written. Yeah. Um, do you feel kind of vindicated in your, you know, if you went back to 2002 and said, well, actually, you know, people and machines are going to end up looking at each other differently. Yeah. Has it kind of gone how you expected in the broadest sense? Uh, I, uh, boy, I'd say it's 50-50. Uh, um, half of what of how I thought things were going to go has played out. But there's always surprises. Like there's always, I mean, you know, people are unexpected and weird and they do things you wouldn't expect on the other hand you know the lessons of history often obtain and have a trajectory that can help you figure out what's going on so uh yeah i would say that like you know what i was saying back then what i said in 2002 was i was interested in the idea that machine intelligence was going to improve and that humans were going to always be good at certain things that machines are bad at but in a weird way, we were going to become almost kind of like used by the machines to do the little bits of image recognition or emotion recognition or something like that, that it was hard for machines to do. In many respects, that does sort of describe the modern world of machine learning and the role that humans have in just training the machines to do that stuff. Like, you know, we're, we're increasingly used um, by these large companies to sort of provide constant training data every time we say something to our Alexa um, so that that stuff's absolutely true. But on the other hand, you know, weirder things happen too. You know, I, I didn't at all predict uh, the role of social media in becoming the, the central um, civic realm of where we talk. And I'm conscious that you're more of an optimist than a lot of people. I have quite yes. a lot of pessimistic conversations on this <laughs> podcast. Um, it's nice to have somebody who is a sort of self-defined optimist. Yeah. What is the cause for your optimism? Sure, yeah. Here's what I would say is that the sort of internet period of our world of communications has given us a couple of great gifts that continue to be great gifts even even as they pose huge challenges. So one of them is that uh, it is it sort of dramatically increased the ability of people to talk and speak to a, a global audience and or just to one other person that doesn't happen to be near them. And, you know, it's almost hard to remember. I mean, I'm old enough to have, you know, written my, my college papers on you know, manual typewriters originally, right? So I, I sort of am cognizant of how hard it was to sort of express yourself at all uh, and even to one person that was nearby you. And, and the downsides of constrained expression are that, you know, your idea space is smaller. The things you learn about uh, are potentially a lot smaller. They're slower. Uh, and there's some real benefits from that slowness and those constraints. Um, and you lose some of those. In, in the world of surplus that comes when suddenly you can communicate much more quickly, much more rapidly, much more globally. But some of the good things that have come from that are quite remarkable. And I'll give just one or two examples. Um, I think that in the, in the realm of politics particularly, there were entire subjects that were of massive pressing importance to the political world that were being completely ignored by people like me in the mainstream media, right? So in the US, the conversation around Black Lives Matter and the, you know, sort of constant systemic abuse of power uh, by police, by other forces uh, against black Americans, you know, that was something that was, it was not news, it was decades old, and yet it had sort of not been part of mass conversation and mass mm -hmm. awareness for most, you know, white Americans. Um, once you gave everyday Americans the ability to document what was actually happening to them on a daily basis and to show it to the world and to talk about it, 
that exploded into the central consciousness of the nation in a way that is now, even if it's argued about, and it really is argued about, it's unignorable. Uh, probably the same thing with Me Too, right? So these these conversations that had, like, you know, they were not new to the people that was that were um, experiencing them, but they were just not not part of the public conversation. They are now there. I still find that salutary. I still think it's fantastic. But, you know, obviously the problems we're wrestling with, and we can talk a lot more about this, you know, have to do with the uh, the downside of anyone being able to say what they want, which is that the crazy stuff gets said and the disinformation gets said. And authority is much harder to um, establish and to assert. And just stepping back for a moment from the kind of the public discourse... I, th- I guess it's probably a challenge as old as time in some respects to think, is the technological situation we're currently in changing us in a way that we've never faced before? Right. You know, everybody yeah. thinks they're living at a unique moment in history, <laughs> and they both are, yeah. and they aren't. That's because, right. Because you know, yeah. we, we face sort of similar challenges when reduced to the, to the humanity of the challenge through different kind of vehicles at different times. Just yeah, I, I think that's quite right. I mean, uh, when I wrote my first book, I got very interested in looking at previous historical examples of dramatic change in communications technologies and how we reacted to it at the time and how we adapted or or failed to adapt. And so definitely, I think what you said is true. I discovered that, that, you know, whenever something new came along, um, it flipped us out and we sort of felt that we were at the cusp of history, you know. Certainly, you know, the origins of of writing was highly disputed. I mean, famously in the Phaedrus, uh, um, Socrates inveighs against the dangers of, of writing. You know, he basically says to his student, Phaedrus, like, look, this writing stuff is terrific, but um, it removes wisdom from face-to-face communication. Like, you know, he basically says, you know, you can take that scroll that you've got that speech written down in, Phaedrus, and you can go read it. But if you have a question to ask, if there's something that that you wonder is wrong, you know, that scroll is dumb and it cannot speak. And so for Socrates, wisdom and knowledge came from the interplay between two people. And he was worried deeply about that dying. Now, the funny thing is, of course, he, you know, he was right, actually. He was right that, like, when you wrote things down, it became easier to lie in a weird way, you know, because <laughs> you could not interrogate the written word. Um, it became easier to assert control over big distances, as McLuhan pointed out. So he was able to note, to figure out the bad stuff. He was, he had trouble predicting the good stuff. He had trouble predicting the idea that that the written record would allow us to amass evidence and to freeze knowledge so we could sort of compare it with other knowledge, right? And this is, this I think is the big challenge all throughout time that I face uh, in the current moment, which is like, we humans are inherently conservative. And I mean that in a good way. We are concerned to conserve what's working right now. And we're suspicious of change, and we should be, because it's really easy to break something that's working. I mean, this is actually the Burkean tradition that I agree with, right? You know, society is a is a fragile thing, uh, and you ought not to mess with it too quickly. But at the same time, it's it's hard to be visionary and to figure out what are the things that we can capitalize on that we can actually improve on the human condition with. Because, you know, we're we're risk averse, we're loss averse. So even I have that trouble. So an interesting thought that arises while I'm listening to you, Clive, is that you touched on the fact that at one point it's easier to lie in writing. And yes. in the sense that actually it's more difficult to lie 
there's a sense that falls out of that. It says it's more difficult to lie in other forms of media, face which to is face. now being face to face for sure, but actually being challenged because mm-hmm. previously you kind of couldn't lie on video, or you, you know, you could in the sense that TV is magic. Exactly. Whereas now you can. You mm-hmm. couldn't lie on audio. That's whereas right. Now you can. And mm-hmm. and then when I think about the nature in which society is changing, and I want to come to talking about the role coders are playing in this mm, at yeah. the moment. Yeah. We are slowly shifting as a recent great New York Times opinion piece that wasn't written at all. The author, whose name just escapes me, had done it all through non-writing text. He'd yes. spoken it, he'd, yes. he'd listened, and it, it even changed the sort of syntax in the way that he'd written the article. Yeah. And we're heading in that direction. You know, totally. We're, we're, we're almost somebody... Um, we had, a couple of weeks ago, we had Amy Webb on the show, mm-hmm. and she was talking on an episode called The Future in the Bamboo Curtain. She was talking about the fact we're entering the beginning of the end of the smartphone era, mm-hmm. um, and everything's going to come off text. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the changes that that brings in society, I think we, we probably can't predict. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I've, I've been meaning for a while to try and find an editor to let me write like an 8,000-word piece about the dominance of video, or the moving image, let's call it, as the uh, rhetoric of the age, right? You know, because you talk to I mean, any young person, and the way that they learn something and their first thought to express something is through the moving image, you know? So they will go to YouTube to research something. They will not go to Wikipedia as often. They will not go as, as often to a, a text-based source. Um, it's not that they won't use them, but like the, the first instinct is, well, let's see what someone has to say about this on YouTube, right? And same thing with expressing an idea. It's like, well, let's put together a video. So this is really interesting and weird, right? You know, the idea that the moving image now becomes the dominant rhetoric for communication. Um, In one sense, it's old. In another way, it's extraordinarily new. Uh, I don't know yet what to make of it. I really want to dig in and research this because I think this is going to become an extraordinarily significant part. If you want to be dystopic, actually, here's a funny one. Um, There was a little essay written that became a book called, um, if I'm remembering this correctly, it's Luke Skywalker is Illiterate. And it's an argument that in the world of Star Wars, everyone is illiterate. You never see anyone reading anything. Even the Jedi have no major texts. They're constantly dealing with computers that speak to them, right? And they speak to the computers. And so the the argument is at some point in time in the past, the AI got good enough at speaking to people from computers and being able to talk to them that they simply lost the ability to deal with text. (laughs) It's a a uh, Mm post-literate civilization. And so in a playful way, I've sort of thought about using that to interrogate this this rise of the moving image as a dominant rhetoric form. Is that what it moves us towards? You know, maybe. I don't know. Partly. I think that's a fantastic question. I want to ask you about coders. Sure, I'll go I mean, ask you about the book. Ask you about why you chose to write it. I chose to write it because I've been writing about... (laughs) the effects of technology on everyday life for 20, 25 years. But it sort of became clear in the course of doing all that writing and talking about software that the average person had no idea how software is made in a way that is almost striking compared to other industrial fields. Like if if you ask them, how is a, a, a 747 made? I mean, they don't really know, but they could hazard a guess. You have to attach the wings to the fuselage. It has to be, you know, it has to have electronics in it, the guidance system. You know, if you ask them, how is open heart surgery done? They don't really know, but they could hazard a guess. You know, you have to cut someone open and you have to remove the blockages from the heart. But software is just a mystery. It's as if it was beamed down from a UFO or something like that. And so I really wanted, on the one hand, simply to sort of peel back that mystery and talk a little bit about the fact that this is people making this, people making decisions, people who have to think in a certain type of way. They have to think in a very machine-like way. But then I wanted to take it a step further and say, okay, so knowing what we, what, what we know about 
the type of people that get drawn to coding, what implications does that have for the rest of us? That that coterie of people now has an enormous amount of power because when they want to do something, when they want to when they want to make some new behavior possible uh, with some new app or some new software, they can transform the world around their decisions. They're creating the furniture for our intellectual lives, and so essentially, the book was an attempt to say, okay, who are the people that are making our world right now? And just quickly before I ask that very question, how far does code permeate our lives at the moment? You know, kind of where where does it exist in places that people mm. probably don't stop to think very yeah. often? Where is code in my day to day life? In one sense, it's almost easier to ask the opposite question: Where does code not exist? Right? I mean, like I I was trying to think about this the other day. I was trying to think: So when do I not interact with software? Mm. I mean, at the most, it's probably like when I go for like a walk in the woods or something like that. Except, you know, I might get lost and pull up my phone and look at the GPS and figure out where I am. And so now I'm using, you know, a smartphone, an operating system, you know, a GPS satellites, you know, that do, you know, Einsteinian error correction uh, over time. So, I mean, software now, I mean, think about it. Let's just put it in some buckets. You wake up in the morning, you check your phone. What are you doing with that? Well, you are figuring out what's going on in the world. You're looking for the news. Now, that might come from a website. That might also be algorithmically determined by Twitter or Facebook. You're trying to communicate with your friends. That's all software. You're buying things and ordering cars. Consumption is now brokered by software. So I guess the, 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 the sort of partly joke, partly true thing that the Mark Andreessen, the um, venture capitalist, wrote about five years ago in the Wall Street Journal. He said that uh, code is eating the world. By the time I got to the end of my book, I said, actually, I think it's digesting it now. And you ended your previous answer saying to find out what kind of people coders are. Mm-hmm. What kind of people are coders? Well, some of what I found, and I, I interviewed about, I guess, about 200 different developers over three years. And, I, and I've obviously met scores more over the years. Uh, what I found is this. Some of it is I think, what you would maybe expect. They are very good at thinking logically, and they're very good at thinking systematically. They're very precise. They have to be, because when you are issuing commands to a computer, uh, a computer is completely literal. So you're giving these instructions. It's as if you had to explain to someone how to cook an egg and had to explain not just that you should use a spoon to crack it, but what a spoon was and what metal is, right? You know, So you have to be very, very particular, and that attracts people who like thinking logically and being very meticulous, almost to a fault in their everyday lives. Like they'll say, I'm the person that's just that annoying, you know, persnickety, you know, are you not being clear enough? I'm pissed off. You're not being clear enough. So that's some of the stuff you'd expect. But there's some other things I didn't expect to find. One is that they are fantastically good at enduring brutal soul crushing levels of frustration because there is nothing that I've seen that anyone can do with their lives it's more frustrating than programming a computer because everything is always broken and it isn't working and you're staring at it and trying to figure it out and if you can't deal with like just Sisyphean frustration you can't survive so that's interesting but the one, one that really stood out and kind of became a tentpole in the book is that they are all in almost an aesthetic way enamored of efficiency mm-hmm. and automation taking things that are slow and speeding them up taking things that are repetitive and automating them. They love doing that. And that starts to become a bit of a skeleton key to understanding the effects that software is having on the world at large. And I was going to ask about some of those effects because you know we have had some un- unintended consequences of code, to say the least, in the last few years. But just before I do, is it fair to say, because it didn't come across to me that they were, is it fair to say that you didn't find that coders were an especially political yeah, no, I, no, I think that's I think that's exactly right. There are certain ideological things that flow from coding, 
Um, and I say ideological almost in the secular sense, not in the party sense, which is a having an, an organizing idea about the world. There are certain things that flow from coding that are ideological. One is that they have a strong belief in the value of openness and transparency because everyone learns to code by looking at other people's code and they get very annoyed and enraged at the idea that things should be kept secret. And so actually in a very funny way, even ones that work for companies that keep all their code secret, at heart they fundamentally like the idea of making things open and so they're always sort of fighting at war with that. And it's been the great success of open source software, the idea that I will create a piece of software that anyone can look at and use, and if they find something wrong with it, they communicate with me, and everything gets improved that way. And so in one sense, they have the ideology that you could say is the ideology of the scientific method, right? Often I find that the society of coders worldwide resembles that of maybe like the Victorian, you know, gentleman scientists, you know, everyone's sharing their stuff. And I find that actually salutary, that ideology quite salutary, and I think it's one of the, the great gifts of coding to the world. They are also very uh, frequently very suspicious of large companies and governments, which is ironic since they're actually creating a lot of large companies. But there's a whole strain in the sort of hacker thinking that has been at war with large interests because really the chronology of, of the last 20 or 30 years has been governments and companies trying to actually stop them from writing certain types of code. Like, don't write that code that lets us, you know, decrypt a DVD. You know, literally, we're going to make it illegal for you to write that code. And that gets their backs up because they feel very strongly about the, the ability to do that. So that's some ideological stuff that pours out of it. However, they are also frequently, not always, but but frequently very, you know, enamored of the idea of the free market and meritocracy, right? You know, the idea that the best wins for two reasons. One is I think it's genuine, which is that um, you really do feel something meritocratic when you're dealing with the machine. The machine... You cannot bluff it. You cannot lie to it. You cannot dissemble. You cannot show it your PowerPoint slide and convince it to run your code. You simply have to write the code correctly, right? And so that sort of gets in your in the grittier soul and adds to some of the sort of libertarian urges you see. But also there's just a demographic reality, which is it's a lot of young guys. And young guys tend to have this belief that they got where they were purely through merit. Right? And, you know? and I was going to say, it's an incredibly libertarian outlook to have in a world so governed by rules. Precisely. Yeah, exactly. It's, there's a it, real contradiction in it, that. There really is. And so the, the concentration of young, you know, cocky, cocksure guys in, in Silicon, Silicon Valley. Valley? Yeah. In Silicon Valley. Um, by the way, the cocksureness also comes from an overconfidence that programming gives you, which is to say, like, there is a real sense, and I've done enough programming to know this, there's a real sense of, oh, my God, I'm a god. You know, there's a Promethean feeling of, I, I issued these instructions, and I brought this life form to life. And it starts to really, if you don't watch out, if you don't have a bit of humbleness, and certainly most young men don't, God knows I didn't when I was a young man, that can really make you feel like you can solve any problem, that you have all the answers, right? And so you immediately are like, well, okay, you know, healthcare, politics, whatever it is, I can roll in and I have all the answers. And so that's another sort of orientation. It's hard to call it specifically political, but it certainly has political implications, mm -hmm. right? You know, it's sort of why you find all these these tech CEOs that think they can solve education, that think they do things better than the government can do them. And they clearly can't. Like, they laughably can't, right? You know? Um, it's because they they think most things can be solved through simple first purposes logic. And a lot of social problems are, you know, what you would call wicked problems. They're very complex and gnarly. You pull one thread, something else pulls another direction. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. 
like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Are coders shaping the world or are they reacting to it? Because I presume they build it and then yeah. they come up against the barrier and that barrier tends to be in the real world. Yeah, yeah. I would say in the last 15 to 20 years, they've done a huge amount of shaping. I mean, really a huge amount. It was a lot of what a coder would for, refer to sort of as like a green field, you know, like there was entirely new areas to colonize and entirely new things to do. You know, email didn't exist, then it did. Instant chat didn't exist, and then it did. Smartphones didn't exist, and they did. The web didn't exist, then they did. It was It's a, a remarkable uh, transformation of the way that we communicate in a very short period of time. And for a long time... A lot of people welcomed it, right? Like there was there was no holds and no breaks put on it, no second thoughts, no regulation. In fact, it was the opposite. Uh, a lot of governments did away with regulations. In the United States, they specifically protected large social networks from any legal liability for what's set on their on their networks, and and that was an enormous gift to them. It allowed them to grow very quickly. I would argue that for twenty years they were doing the shaping. They are now, I think, as you pointed out and suggested, they are now running in to the limits of that because they've they've so terraformed parts of civic life and economic life that people are beginning to get a little uneasy with what's happened. And, and that comes, you know, you see it all over the place. You see it in the reactions to, say, Uber or Airbnb transforming cities. You see it in concerns about the dominance of Facebook as a vector for how people learn about the world and how they learn nonsense and disinformation and, and, get, and get stuck in the filter bubbles. So they've had a very merry time of shaping for 20 years, but now they are in a period where the material world, the world of people, is beginning to push back. And at a more practical level, I've got zero coding experience. Mm-hmm. But I suspect when you're, when you're actually trying to create a program and you run into an issue where it's not working for the user, right? and you have to identify why it's not working for the user, mm-hmm. that is also a kind of interaction with humanity sure. as it is. Absolutely. So I guess there's a constant friction between the ability to kind of coerce people into the coding mm-hmm. tram lines... 
But at the same time, those channels have to be built around sure. what people are. Yeah, absolutely. And let's be clear that there are there are different buckets of code, right? There are types of coding that you do that doesn't have to interact with the quote-unquote user at all. And there are certain types of coders that love to go there, right? You know, uh, it, it, 30 years ago, that would have been like, databases, you know, filled with like financial information. You don't really have to worry about how the user deals with that. Once things moved on the web and people began making things directly for people, uh, you started to find that uh, the ball was more in the court of the coder that could actually understand enough of human psychology that they could do something that was useful or seductive to shape behavior, right? They didn't necessarily have a good grasp on the unintended consequences of what they were creating, but they did have to think about it. And yet there's still other areas of coding that you can flock to if you do, if you want nothing to do mm. with thinking about people. AI is actually very much that way in a way that's somewhat concerning, right? Like, it's really the math heads and the people that are obsessed with, like, you know, raw sort of problem solving that flock to areas like blockchain and AI. Uh, they're not really thinking about making something that's in front of someone. They're thinking about making a back-end system that's going to make a bunch of decisions. So in one sense, there's like a Linnaean taxonomy now of coding, you know, where in some areas you might really need to be close to the user and understanding them directly. In other places, you could completely flee from them. So it becomes a little hard to generalize across all coders. But, you know, the success, I mean, the most successful companies, I think, that have shaped human behavior have understood enough about what people want that they can do something very seductive for us, but also failed to heed what was really going on in a way that got us into some jams. You've used the phrase unintended consequences. I have too. We talked about scale. And on this podcast, we, you know, we've talked a lot about Facebook, Google, Twitter, and the public discourse, disinformation, fake news. We've covered all of this ground mm -hmm. on the show in, in different times. But I think what you can help do is give an insight into the personalities of the people in these organizations. Because at times people have said to me, well, actually, you know, we're starting to see a bit of a backlash. There's the Google protest walkout. That's right. And, yeah. you know, but it seems to me if you've got if you've got fundamentally sort of mm -hmm. apolitical and maybe not quite apolitical, but you've got people who don't get into people and politics that much. Yeah. You've got these incredible political outcomes yes. at scale. Yeah, that's right. There's a real gap between solving the problem and the people who are in the position to solve the problem. Yeah, yeah. Scale itself is actually a very interesting vector of coder psychology. So one of the things that, that about code that makes it different from other industrial innovations is that it can be replicated with virtually no cost around the world, right? So if I invent a new tractor, that's pretty cool, but to, to make a million of them is difficult and to ship them around the world is difficult. Whereas, uh, so, so I approach scale you know, thinking carefully about the dynamics of how the heck I'm even going to, how am I going to move all those atoms around? Now, scale with code is very, very different because, you know, you make something in your dorm room, Facebook, and within days, it's being used by thousands of people. Within a year, it's being used by millions. And, you know, it's certainly hard to grow, to manage that scale, but it's a lot easier than shipping tractors. And so what that sort of creates is actually this love of scale and growth amongst a certain type of coder. There's almost a disdain for doing anything that's small, right? And that's particularly true in Silicon Valley where another center of gravity and another sort of center of, of psychological gravity, as it were, is venture capital money, which is constantly looking for that massive metastatic growth because venture capital can, you know, they're fine with something that collapses after a year. 
They're fine with something that explodes into the high heavens. They have no idea what to do with just a normally functioning business that sort of grows a little bit and makes money. They hate that, right? Most of the things that we think of as normal economic outcomes, they regard as colossal failures. So what this creates is a world where everything has to get big, big, big really quickly. In one sense, okay, that's fine, things getting big. But the one thing that I think we've discovered is that scale uh, causes problems for social activity, right? You know, like uh, something that's manageable with 100 people, 1,000 people, 10,000 people becomes quite a different creature at 10 million or 100 million. I mean, Clay Shirky, he's quoting someone else, but um, he says, you know, more isn't just more, more is different, right? And scale is really what has gotten us into some of the pickles we've got into. Because once you're, once you're operating it, you know, any sort of a system in which people communicate with each other, let's call it a social network, and there are tens or hundreds or millions or billions of people, you have created a situation where human judgment has to be thrown out the window, right? You know, you have to move towards algorithms, sorting things, picking them, picking the winners, picking the losers. And that is really where a lot of woe lies, right? You know, the sort of um, exporting, the excising of, of human decision-making. And, of course, that's another part of coder psychology that they're perfectly comfortable with because they love efficiency. They love things being fast and being done with, quote-unquote, no friction, right? So they're always jumping to very frequently, how do we algorithmically solve this? I don't want to slow down and ask people to solve this. I want to do this algorithmically. But... I really think what we're seeing now are the limits of that approach when it comes to social assistance, when it comes to civic issues, when it comes to speech. There's some great phrases in your book. Uh, one, I think, is a quote of Twitter in the early days being the free speech wing of the free speech yes. party. <laughs> yeah, and there's right. another one as well where somebody describes, uh, I think, again, it was Twitter's approach, but correct me if I'm wrong, as naive as fuck. <laughs> yes, uh, that, that was an actual Twitter engineer uh, uh, who worked there for several years. Off the record, uh, um, he was not been named, but yeah, he was there for several years. And he was like, yeah, these, you know, you had a bunch of young guys that had no experience of the dreadful things that routinely happen to women, to people of color online, laying down the rules of engagement, for which to say almost no rules of engagement, right? Anyone can talk to anyone else. There's it's difficult to block or ban people. Yeah. And people should, I mean, people should read the book to get inside this completely. But you do give some great evidence of kind of the problem within organisations starting to be seen but largely ignored. Absolutely. And now we're in a situation where companies are employing moderators to sift through horrific content in a very dispiriting manner. Mm. I presume the impulse of the coder, and therefore I don't know if it's too late to say probably the psyche of the company, mm. is. How do we fix this through code? Yes, exactly. Rather than trying to get people in to fix it. Yeah. Do you think it's possible to fix some of the problems we've got around public discourse, we've got around disinformation, we've got around algorithmic bias in terms of what people see mm. through code? No, I don't think so, actually. Mm. I mean, I mean, I think actually the attempt to walk out of this problem purely through algorithmic fixes is not going to work. And in fact, actually... Part of what is kind of horrifying to watch, actually, is this deployment of tens of thousands of human moderators who are forced to look at this incredibly disturbing, you know, sort of PTSD-inducing material under horrible conditions where they're not paid very much at all and given very little therapy, partly because it seems pretty clear, without them actually saying so, that the goal of all the high-tech companies is just to gather enough data from humans moderating this so they can train AI to try and auto-recognize the stuff. And I simply am not convinced that's going to work. Uh, and I say that from having done a lot of research 
into the mechanics of deep learning, uh, the type of AI that they're using to do this recognition, um, I don't think it's up to the task. I think it may never be up to the task. Human culture uh, is too nefarious and weird and complex. It's like that old joke, I don't know what pornography is, but I can recognize it when I see it, you know? A human can make a, can make a reasoned judgment about something that's abusive or terrible. And um, there are going to be limit cases that are just going to slip, 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 slip through these AI I wonder what that means, again, sort of partly thinking psychologically, for the, the amount of power that we ascribe to coders. So yeah. retrospectively, we can look at the last couple of decades and say they've been supremely powerful, yeah. fairly regulated, created scale, changed the world, literally. Yeah. But now they're, they're running up against regulation and the human consequences. You know, somebody, a guest, Carl Miller, on an episode from the Politics Summit, described hackers as the aristocrats of the new information age. <laughs> yeah. And it strikes me that that hackers it may still be true coders maybe not as true now as it was five years ago or do you think there are new frontiers mm. uh there are definitely new frontiers i mean i honestly think that the, the the movement towards ai being inserted everywhere and when i say ai i mean this sort of um these systems that are trained on data and machine, then yeah, sure. machine we, learning yeah yeah that's what i mean AI when i say AI, AI, okay yeah when i say ai i mean i mean deep learning we're still just the beginnings of that in a way that's quite freaky. I mean, that stuff is going to get injected everywhere because, again, it is seen as this wonderfully efficient way to do things. Instead of you having to sit down and write the rules yourself, the if-then statements, if this happens, then that happens, you simply gather 10,000 cat photos and train it to look to understand cats. And it works well enough in enough situations that uh, – it is uh, enormously appealing and it's getting easier and easier to do, which is to say like 10 years ago, you had to have a PhD to do it. Now, any jerk like me could take a TensorFlow, train up a model and then release some product that instead of me having written the algorithm myself, I've trained some crappy thing that kind of works 95% of the time and catastrophically fails 5% of the time. So we're just at the beginning of that. So I actually think there is, um, there's quite a lot of power uh, still being deployed by developers, absolutely. And do you think that, I guess this kind of, the upper hand will shift between the coders and uh, the human pushback? Because mm. ultimately, code, if code, coding, you know, you describe it brilliantly at the start of the book where you say you, one single piece of punctuation out of place mm. in a coding language and yeah. the whole thing just doesn't work. Yeah. So you, coders exist in this ultimately rational world yes and yet we as humans live in a uniquely emotional world <laughs> yes exactly i mean like it's almost trite to say now but that that really is one of the culture collisions right you know i mean like when you code part of the pleasure of it is dealing with um real linearity if i do this that will happen every single time that's one of the great pleasures of it like it's a refuge from the insanity of humans right you know i mean like i actually in in the book i talk about how i started I started learning more coding. I did it when I was a kid, but I didn't do much of it in my 20s or 30s. I started doing more of it in my 40s, partly because I was interested in learning more about coders. But what I discovered was that it was more pleasant than writing, right? Like it was more fun to code than to write because writing is exactly that complex human stuff. Um, I don't really know when I'm going to be done this book or this article. And is it good? Does it work? I mean, I don't know. That's That's in the eyes of the of the reader. Um, it's subjective. It's out of my control. Whereas when I was coding, you know, when, when it worked, I was done. And, and it always worked after that, right? Like, I mean, so 
one of the things, this is a funny story. I, um, when the book came out, you know, for the first two days, like every author, I sat there refreshing my Amazon page over and over and over again, you know, waiting to see if it would have gone up in the, um, in any rankings. And eventually I began to realize, okay, this is, this is crazy. Um, it's all wasting all my time. But since I know enough coding, I could write a piece of software to automate this. I could make this efficient. So I wrote what's known as a little web scraper. And four times a day, it goes, scrapes all the contents of my Amazon page, searches and finds any lists I'm on, formats it as a text message, and texts it to me. And it was wonderful. I sort of, I, I got rid of all that problem. I, I could do it. Writing that code was more pleasant than almost writing any part of my book, basically. I think that's really, again, it's trade to say that's really at the heart of the collision between coding culture and the rest of the world. The world is messy, but the moments when you're a coder and you're writing that code, it just feels so wonderful and in control and binary. It's very easy in these conversations to slip into dystopia versus utopia. And it's yes. something I always yeah. consciously really try and avoid on the show. But it does strike me that there is a potentially a, a battle here. And I, I suspect I know what you might say. But when I think about other interviews we've done, we've had Jamie Bartlett on the show and Jamie Suskind on an episode called Future Politics, which mm. I would recommend to people who are thinking through some of these questions. In a tussle between a world defined by algorithm mm. and definitely that the power of the algorithm is going to grow mm-hmm. or a world defined by the chaos of humanity mm. which isn't quite utopia dystopia although yeah. I, I kind of <laughs> will that tussle do you think that tussle is likely to have an overall winner or do you think we live in a kind of we'll consistently live in a in a back and forth between the two? Oh boy i i think we're likely to see an enormous amount more growth in the control of algorithms over everyday life largely because the marketplace and capitalism is enormously rewarded by it, right? So the messy humans who are being affected by all this will scream in rage, but the only recourse they have against that, the only other leviathan that has any power against that is government, right? And unfortunately, right now in the US and in the UK, government is... um, is in a period of crisis of extremely low effectiveness, right? You know, inability to do the basic stuff, to pass damn budgets, right? Let alone do complicated. The EU is doing a much better job at actually trying to figure out a response to this stuff. Um, so I would say, you know, in the short run, I think the algorithms and the large companies that deploy them are going to have the edge. But in the long run, I mean, you know, the world is messy and we humans have a millennial demonstrated ability to sort of muddle through, you know, complicated situations, you know, certainly not achieving an optimum result, um, but not fully collapsing. We shall see. I mean, I'm pessimistic in the short run and probably optimistic in the long run. And the the difficulty of government, you give me a good chance to uh, plug an episode of Government vs. Robots called 21st Century Government with uh, Nadine Smith, where we touch on some of the elements of what can government do differently to try and get to grips with some of these problems. My last question, and regular listeners will be familiar that I try and end on a positive note, which shouldn't be difficult for you as a self <laughs> yes. optimist, is just to take a look at some of the ways that coding is really being used for good. So there's a branch of Coders for America in Portland who occasionally retweet the show, for which I will say thank you to them if they're listening, and at some point I hope to visit Portland and be shown around by them. Not least to try, I'm, I'm told it's very good craft beer soon in Portland. Mm, so. Yes. My question is, can you just talk about some of the ways that people like Coders for America are striking a blow for the powers and the forces for good? Absolutely. And in fact, here's where I'll pivot and say, okay, so we've been talking about the dangers of AI being wielded by large, powerful interests to shape us. Um, AI is also, with its ability to recognize patterns that humans have trouble spotting, uh, enormously powerful at solving wicked problems. For example, 
um, deforestation, right? You know, you've got these fantastic nonprofits in the last 10 years that have started using satellite imagery to try and figure out where deforestation is happening. But, you know, sometimes they're, you know, they're behind the curve. They can only sound the alarm after it's already happened. But they've been training AI now on so many data sets showing before and after deforestation that they're developing AI that can recognize deforestation before it's actually going to occur, right? This is fantastic, right? And in fact, actually, I've just been doing a bunch of reporting for Wired about environmentalists who are, you know, like enormously catalyzed by modern technology, stuff that we sometimes see as as freaky for surveillance is fantastic for environmental monitoring, ranging from drones, ranging from AI. People with like, you know, omnipresent mobile phones, it turns out those things are really great for roping everyday citizens into doing environmental monitoring and figuring out actually how to solve problems. So like the environment is one area where they're all actually completely excited by the potential of modern technology to really help grapple with and solve the problems. You know, that's just one little example. But yes, there's copious areas. And when I mentioned earlier on, I I think I talked uh, about the fact that even in the sort of crap show of modern social media, there was still the fact that these massive social issues got raised. And that that's still going on, right? I mean, like in a weird way, I look at social media and it's also, it feels like sometimes when you have water mixing under the tap and they don't quite mix and it's hot and cold at the exact same time, that's sort of what it feels like. I'll sort of, you know, you know, turn on Twitter one time and there's something absolutely fantastic happening. Some like consciousness raising, some issue that's like, gathering steam and people are learning things. And the other times it's like, wow, a bunch of Russian bots piling on feminists, you know? So the good is still is still structurally in there in, in a very strong way. You know, in fact, actually, I've, I've talked to these activists who've been, you know, piled on by bots. And I'm like, why don't you just leave Twitter? And they're like, oh, God, no. Like, they're like, that's where I learn the stuff. That's where I contact people. That's where action happens. And that's where we're moving the ball forward. And I'm like, all right, there you go. Great. Clive, thanks very much for joining me. I had a good time. That's all for this week's Government versus the Robots. We hope you've enjoyed the conversation. As ever, thanks to Sky Redman for her help with the editing and production of this episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please do tell your friends about it and you can find us on Twitter at G-O-V-T underscore B-S underscore robots. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. 
Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.